It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. At the Croc, Vanessa's kids play basketball while she unwinds in yoga. And on the way home, they always share tips. They can dunk from downward dog and make hook shots in headstands. Join more than a gym when you click the link. The Croc. Get into it. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Pucks and Cups, where I look at early hockey history. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I do all of this full time and every dollar you give helps keep all of it going. From the beginning of June until the end of August, I will be taking a cross-Canada history tour. I'm going to be visiting various rural historical attractions, all of the graves of the Prime Ministers except for R.B. Bennett because he is buried in England, and I'm going to be going from coast to coast to coast, the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the Arctic over the course of the 90 days. This is going to be a bare-bones trip for me, sleeping in tents and just enjoying the history and nature of Canada. If you'd like, you can help support this trip by going to my GoFundMe page. I'll put the link in my show notes. And don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, From John to Justin and Canadian History X, available on all podcast platforms. The most storied franchise in NHL history, without a doubt, are the Montreal Canadiens. With 24 Stanley Cups, not one, not two, but three dynasties, the club set the standard for NHL greatness. To think of the Canadians playing anywhere else would be unthinkable today. But it almost happened, and it was before the team ever became the dominant force it would become. The 1920s were good years for the Canadians. From 1919-20 to 1924-25, the team never finished below third place, and won the Stanley Cup in 1923-24. After a brief dive to 7th in 1925-26, the team bounced back, and from 1927-28 to 1931-32, the team finished first four times and won two Stanley Cups in a row. Unfortunately, things would take a turn for the worse for the team. The Great Depression would sink many franchises, including the Ottawa Senators and the Montreal Maroons, and it nearly brought down the Canadians themselves. By 1932-33, the Canadians had won four Stanley Cups, the most recent only two years previous, but the crowd sizes were incredibly small. During that season, a losing season for the club, attendance sat at an average of 2,000 fans per game. In that season, the team finished with a record of 18-25 and lost in the first round of the playoffs, but the worst was yet to come. In order to cut costs in 1934, the team would sell its franchise player, Howie Morenz, to the Chicago Blackhawks. The move was incredibly unpopular, and when Morenz scored against the Canadians on the last day of the 1934-35 season, he was given a standing ovation. The losing record continued for the team with 19 wins and 23 losses. At the end of that season, losses were at $60,000 from the previous two seasons, and the Canadians were put up for sale. Now, to say the team was up for sale may be a bit of a misnomer. It isn't exactly known when the team was officially for sale, but an offer could come in. 
1930, for example, the club turned down an offer of $300,000 from an American syndicate to buy the team. As the Great Depression raged, the offers to buy the Canadians would essentially dry up, and ownership said they would never sell the club for less than $300,000. Even that line in the sand would shift. This is where Cleveland, Ohio comes into the picture as preparations were made to sell the club to the buyer in the city. On March 30, 1935, the New York Herald Tribune would write about the possible move, saying, quote, The Canadians were reported to have lost $45,000 this season, are understood to have received an outright offer of $200,000 by a Cleveland syndicate to buy the team. End quote. The article also quotes Joseph Katerinich, co-owner of the Canadians, who says, quote, Montreal is obviously losing interest in professional hockey. The game here has passed its peak of popularity, and the city is too small to support two clubs. End quote. The owners would refuse this offer too, but the price for the Canadians was not going up. Thankfully, Maurice Forget and Ernest Savard stepped forward and bought the team for $165,000, far below what the owners would have received in 1930. The three men were actually a front for the Canadian Arena Company, who also owned the Montreal Forum and the Montreal Maroons. Instead of moving, the Canadians found themselves owned by their rivals. Ironically, it would be the Maroons who moved after winning the Stanley Cup in 1935 when they folded in 1938. In 1937-38, the Canadian Arena Company was looking at cutting one of the franchises in Montreal. The Maroons were recent Stanley Cup winners, so it looked like the Canadians would be the ones to fold. In this case, Con Smythe, the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs, led a movement in the NHL to veto the company's attempt to fold the Canadians, stating that it was one of the most distinct franchises in the league. As a result, the Maroons would be the team to fold. There were talks of moving the Montreal Maroons to Cleveland, as well as St. Louis and Pittsburgh, but none of these came to fruition. At the time, Cleveland was the first choice for relocation, and if that move had happened, we may have had the original seven, not the original six era. Cleveland would eventually get its own franchise, a semi-professional team with the Cleveland Falcons, who played from 1934 to 1937, and then became the Cleveland Barons. During their existence from 1937 to 1973, the team would win a then-record nine Calder Cups. The Cleveland Barons would become an NHL team very briefly, but proved to be terrible and would disappear soon after appearing in the NHL in the 1970s. The Canadians would continue to struggle, finishing at or near the bottom of the league for the next several seasons. In 1935-36, the team missed the playoffs completely, with a record of 11 wins and 26 losses. Things would slowly improve. In 1936-37, the team finished in first place, but a slide would begin in 1937-38 and continue until 1943-44. That season, a man named Maurice Richard would take to the ice for the Canadians for the first time, and everything would change. By the next year, the team had won the Stanley Cup. Then the club went on to win 19 more Stanley Cups from 1946 to 1993. So thank goodness they never relocated. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at when Cleveland was almost the home of the Montreal Canadiens. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at 
You can also visit my website. We will find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information from the Hockey Blog in Canada, Habs Eye on the Prize, and Wikipedia. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.